Hey folks, welcome to a podcast about Catholic things. This is Eric, the Ambassador of Common Sense, and I'm here with... Dan, the Ambassador of Nonsense. Welcome, folks. Uh, we we did do what we said we were going to do. We did record... Uh, we did record a short thing about... You know what? Let me turn the gain down on this. Oh, I'm it? looking at my mic. It's way and too it's high. saturating? Yeah. Maybe try this. I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait and see. I'll fix yeah. it. But, um, okay, we said that we were going to do a podcast on St. Francis, and we did do that. Yep. But... It was just bad. I oh. I couldn't put it out do we, there. It just we, do we want to? We sounded it? like idiots. <laughs> okay, maybe maybe we want to redo that. I'm going to increase the gain on my mic slightly. Okay. Okay. All right, we can redo we can redo Saint Francis, and um, we could either do do him at the end of this month and make this month our first month for that, uh, or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that's we. I I feel like when we do the saints. If, if part of our purpose is to honor the saints, we should do them the honor yeah. of being prepared. Yeah, at least, you know, dig into this and and, and not just fly off the cuff and, and talk about things we didn't research and stuff like that. So right. um, we'll redo it eventually, but not right now. And you're okay. probably hearing my voice go up and down and stuff because I'm trying to perfect my volume here. And I've almost got it, but I think I'm there. <laughs> um, anyway... But there was one thing I said in that podcast that I do, and it goes back to something I said the week before that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was the week before that. I mentioned General Grant. Yeah, because we're talking about American his history. His lack of action during the war. And I had gotten confused. I was not thinking of General Grant. I was thinking of General McCulloch. Oh, okay, okay. The very first general who was kind of in charge and apparently the men loved him, and he was great at organizing and creating an army. But mm-hmm. he just, he wouldn't attack. He, and Abraham he, Lincoln yeah, kept it, saying, attack, attack, attack. He wasn't a man of military action. It's possible that if he had attacked when he was ordered to, uh, the Civil War would have lasted maybe a couple months instead of, what was it, four years? Mm-hmm. It was a long, bloody war, and yeah, yeah, some people it, would argue it didn't have to be. Yeah. Okay, so but, quite possibly. Um, By the way, anyway. um, I, I think it's the Civil War. Um, this is – somebody research this and maybe correct me if I'm wrong because this is kind of nerding out on a tidbit. Um, yeah. One of the things that, that I remember hearing um, from a, a gun buff buddy about the Civil War – is that part of the reasons that it was far more bloody than it needed to be in terms of deaths was that they had recently invented the rifle bore. Well, I, I don't think it's because... We had bored rifles in the Revolution. Are you sure they were rifle bored and not just I, smooth bored? There's a way of doing the bore where... of making the barrel where you take two pieces of metal and you wrap it around in order to make the barrel or more than oh, two. Oh, and that, pr- that creates the rifling. The ba- yeah. The, and the, I think rather, that's what Not we the milled rifling, the but... Okay, yeah, I so, should, so I may be uh, wrong we'll about that. We'll look that, that up then. when we get to the yeah, uh, we'll, Civil War. But I yeah, thought one yeah. of the things was the, the encased cartridges and the fact that we... Before that, they were using black powder, weren't they? 
I thought they were still using black powder in the Civil War. Had they invented smokeless powder by then? I don't. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but or maybe it's just the fact that they could. uh, Some of the guns could use, uh, you know, cartridges instead Mm -hmm. of a instead of reloading your barrel each time. Right. I don't know. In any case, I, we will do our research. We will have all the weapons coolness for you when we also talk about the significance <laughs> of the Civil War to American history. <laughs> right. We're not there yet, so we don't have to know. It's just little th- interesting things that, that uh, you end up talking about when you talk about the Civil War. Yeah. Today we're talking about the maybe the religious Civil War going on or that has been going on and... Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you where this all started. Okay, I, I've, I'm writing that series on the Exorcist guy. Mm-hmm. Father um, P. Father P. And in the next book, we're introducing things like Latin. And recently, uh, Taylor Marshall had published the book uh, Infil- Infiltration or Infiltrated. Can't remember now. Uh, uh, Infil- I think Infiltration. Oh, yeah, it's infil- Infiltration. The infiltration. plot to destroy the... Tr- okay. Yeah. The plot um, to destroy the church from within. So I, I'm reading along in this thing, and you know, I've I've always kind of already had my own feelings about what happened in Vatican II, about why it came about, and the people who made it come about, and then the uh, the direct results of it. And here we are, almost a hundred century later, uh, and we see the result. Not. I guess uh, three quarters of a century, and, and we can see the results, and they're not good. They're, we see nothing but bad things happening throughout the entire church, and it doesn't take a whole lot to know that it's all a direct result of Vatican II and the laxity of the rules and stuff. So as I dive into these stories of um, exorcism, and I get more into the conversations between the exorcist and the demons, this kind of stuff is going to come up. And I was going to put some of the bad players throughout church history into these exorcisms. And then I see people like Pope Paul VI and Pope John XXIII are both saints. And I'm starting to think, well, wait a minute. How can these guys be saints when this when they caused this amount of discord? This all happened under their banner. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying it seems like there was a lot of bad will here. That's that's how we look back on it. And if you read Taylor Marshall's book, you definitely think that. So so okay. What is so this? Yeah, let's let's talk. So, so there's two things, uh, two aspects to talk about. One of them is the question of what does it mean to say that that they're saints, uh, and then the other side of it is okay. Then what is their role in Vatican II um, that would seem to make the statement John the Twenty Third or Paul the Sixth is a saint problematic? And um, I'm also going to point out that uh, a couple days ago, somebody accused uh, uh, Bishop Vigano of being, um, it's, it's Cardinal Vigano, isn't it? Accused uh, uh, yeah. Cardinal Vigano of being a, a schismatic because he uh, 
he had said some things about Vatican II, and, and it seems like not a lot of bishops dare to say anything about Vatican II. And uh, Vigano answered him in a letter, and towards the end of the letter, he mentioned these popes. Mm-hmm. And um, hold on here, let me read what he said. He talks about the fairy tale of hermeneutic, of hermeneutic, even though an authoritative. One, because of its author, he's talking about Pope Benedict here, nevertheless remains an attempt to want to give dignity of a council to a true and proper ambush against the church. He's identifying Vatican II Vatican as II. an ambush against mm-hmm. the church. And if, you, if you're at all traditional, that's kind of the way you see it. And he says, so as not to discredit along with it the popes who wanted. So, in other words, so to to justify all of this, uh, we imposed and reproposed that council so much so that those same popes, one after the other, rise to the honors of the altar for having been popes of the council. He's taken a shot at uh, Francis there for declaring these popes as saints, okay, or canonizing them. Right. Right. And Francis is the one who canonized him. Who canonized, right. And um, we know that, I, we don't know the, uh, Francis's state, but we know that he has taught heresy. And he, yeah, some of he what he has said is it. certainly, and yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's, um, he, he, uh, he'll, he has made statements that are heretical or, or caused, uh, statements to be made that are heretical. Uh, and right. He, he doesn't back down from that. Um, okay. So, so let's, let's kind of take this apart a a little bit at a time. First of all, let's talk about what it means to be canonized. Um, if you go back to like the early church, the people who were considered, so basically there was no process of formal canonization the way we understand it in the early church. Instead, what, what would happen... What time are you talking about? Like 200? Basically, or? yeah, actually about the first whole millennia, but up, up until about the 11th century. Okay. So what, what would happen is that those who, within a local area, had been martyred and were known for their martyrdom that that was the proof of canonization if you want to think of it that way they didn't call it that then um but that was their the proof of their holiness and their entry into the beatific vision was the fact that they were martyred for the faith and so the local um people the the local bishops who you know who led the the uh people and and who had control over the mass would enter their name into the Eucharistic prayer of the Mass. And that was sort of the canonization that occurred. And now, uh, we should, most people probably know this, but for those who don't, it is a teaching of the Catholic Church that someone who is martyred, who dies for the faith, is, goes to heaven without purgatory. Right. So we consider Immediately them in heaven. To heaven. They are saints. Yeah. Um, 
So, uh, around the end of the 4th century, uh, under uh, Constantine with the Edict in Milan, um, sort of bringing the first official end of um, persecution of Christians, um, <clears throat> you know, not quite establishing the Holy Roman Empire yet, but uh, but there's sort of kind of a knee in terms of Christian martyrdom around that time frame. Um, and so what you had was in a lot of different areas, uh, various people being accumulated into the mass as martyrs. And eventually, um, much later in the church's history, there was established a universal martyr, martyrorium uh, in, in the, uh, the liturgy. Uh, these are the, martyrs that we're going to honor there it wasn't the whole list of martyrs obviously because you know yeah. so many people but i don't think there was a specific pope i think it just developed okay. okay so anyway anyway it grew up that that in the in the church they had the martyrs um and i think what here's what happened the um the roman the the char- martyrs that were in the mass that grew out of the roman diocese basically were the ones that ended up becoming the martyrology of the entire, the universal church eventually. Okay. Now, here's the thing. So, so after about, you know, 400, um, there were a lot fewer martyrs and therefore, you know, they weren't being added to the liturgy and that kind of stuff. Right. From what I'm reading, the first thing that we might consider a canonical process for canonization occurred under Pope Urban II in the 11th century uh, in the cause of a fellow named Nicholas of Trani and he, uh, the, the Pope asked the bishop to order a conduct of uh, local investigation into his alleged sanity and miracles uh, to submit for the Pope for judgment Um this cause actually dragged over several papacies and I think ended up not actually being, um, not resulting in, in a, the canonization of, of Nicholas. Uh, I guess they must have, you know, found some dirt okay. on him or whatever. Um, so in the late, uh, 12th century, Pope Alexander the third decided that uh, he decreed that no one could be declared a saint without the permission of the Supreme Pontiff. So up until this time, that wasn't juridically clear within the church. Bishops themselves might declare people saints. Um, and you might have local church heroes who a bishop right. suddenly said, well, yeah, this guy was, and in, in, in everybody just kind of went along with it. Exactly, exactly. And then um, this regulation, uh, from what I'm reading, was formally incorporated into the church law by Pope Gregory IX in 1234. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of honoring saints, those who share in the beatific vision, praying to them uh, and asking their intercession, this goes back from the earliest days of Christianity. But the reservation of that final determination to the Pope and the establishment of an actual process um, for determining whether uh, this actually, you know, this person actually belongs 
uh, in the canon didn't occur. It didn't start until about Hold the 11th on, century. Oh, sorry. I lost you. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I, I was explaining that, that basically, uh, even though the, the church has an ancient tradition that goes all the way back to the beginning of Christianity of honoring the saints who died and went to heaven, which they recognized by their martyrdom, they're dying for hatred of the faith, um, and praying to them and having a, um, a basically a cult, a Latin cultus, which is, you know, it basically means worshiping through them, uh, you know, identifying them as exemplars um, of how we should live our lives uh, for Christ. And then, of course, asking for their intercession, knowing that they're holy men who are now with God and women. Women were, were martyrs, too, even in the earliest times of Christianity. Okay. So, um, but even though that extends far back, the concept of reserving the declaration of sainthood to the popes or of um, some kind of a process associated with that didn't occur until after um, the first millennium had closed. Um, And one of the things that occurred, as I said, around the time of Constantine, the, the persecutions dropped off. There weren't nearly as many martyrs um, for people to kind of latch on to and add. Hold on. Yeah. We're having all kinds of problems. Did I lose you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, I don't know if anybody heard that phone ringing, but uh, that was... uh, that was me that calling was Eric back. Calling me back, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, just right. keep going. Okay, so um, so the other thing is that uh, martyrdom had kind of dropped off after the Edict of, of Milan, and so people started looking for other ways to have some indication of one of their, you know, beloved having gone into the you know, his heavenly reward into the beatific vision. And, and so they're looking for other signs of heroic, uh, you know, virtues in their life and that kind of stuff. And, and I, I think it's under the, um, the need to, to recognize these softer proofs of, of, uh, beatitude that the concept of, Hey, we need to have a process in place and and we need to to have kind of a reservation of judgment to the Holy See and that kind of stuff. I think that's why that came into play there. Um, I guess I mean if 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 you're not being put to death for the sake of the church, it's a little bit harder to say whether or not uh, you were a saint. There's not a solid thing there, so there has to be some kind of investigation to see if this guy's for real, if he was all talk or what. So. So the popes reserved that to themselves. They established these processes. Um, at some point uh, during the time after the um, 11th century, the process started becoming um, fairly rigid. And, and I use that term in a good way. Uh, what I mean is the requirement to have, for example, a devil's advocate whose job was to try to dig up dirt on the guy and disprove the case and so on and so forth. Because, you know, the last thing the church wanted was to be 
um, elevating as saints and have people praying to someone who, in fact, might not be in heaven um, and who might not have lived the heroic uh, virtue that everybody around them thought they had. Right. And so that, you know, that's why all these processes came up. Now, it's notable that since Vatican II, some of the rigor in this process was dropped. Uh, I don't think, for example, they have a devil's advocate anymore, uh, you know, stuff like that. They just do their investigation. Um, although, uh, in the case of uh, Fulton Sheen, you seem to have people perfectly willing to stand up and be a devil's advocate without being asked. Um, yeah. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> Even though I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything uh, for the devil to advocate with regards to Sheen, but but there they are nonetheless. <laughs> I would mention, uh, and <laughs> and I don't know if Taylor Marshall talks about this or not, but he is talking about communism infiltrating the Catholic Church, which uh, most of us know that that happened. Uh, yeah, he kind of uh, communism communism infiltrated line. everything. Yeah, they did, and they meant to, and they planned to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, deliberately. And uh, uh, Fulton Sheen, who nobody seems to want to make a saint. Well, not nobody. A lot of people are against calling him a saint. Uh, he was very much against the communists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that may be part of their yes. Yeah, because now, if you say, "Well, he's a saint," okay, well, let's look at you know, let's emulate what he wrote, what he said what he taught and uh you know now you've got a whole bunch of people who can look to that and say hey this this sainted man here's what he had to say about communism um so yeah that that could certainly be part of it um anyway so back to the 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 thing the the other thing about canonization that um i think bears a little bit of discussion is its its place vis-a-vis infallibility now I, I get a little bit annoyed when I read people on this. First of all, the thing that I'm not annoyed with is that almost every theologian today uh, holds the view that the church and acting through the Pope, um, but even in those older times when it wasn't necessarily through the Pope, although you can make an argument that the Pope kind of blessed those um those sort of implicit canonizations by allowing them to continue. But yeah. every theologian today believes that the church's act of canonization of declaration of the sainthood of this person is an infallible act infallible in the sense that uh, we would not only be uh, foolish and imprudent, but even wrong and unholy and disobedient to not believe it. Okay. So that's, that's one of the things. Yeah. Now, here's the part. Here's the part that I get annoyed at. The, uh, it, 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 this is a subject that that deserves a little bit of exploration because, um, if you think about you know the modern common um, explanation, like we people come and challenge us on infallibility, and they bring up stupid questions like, well, does you know, I could give the, your Pope a, uh, you know, a test on nuclear physics and he's not going to pass it, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, and then we go on to explain, okay, but the Pope's infallibility is, uh, you know, within his office, it's, it's in matters pertaining to faith and morals, blah, blah, blah. The thing is, the canonization of saints is, is not um, 
you can't really argue that it's a matter of faith. You know, a, a person's disposition with regards to heaven is not an article of faith. Um, it's right. certainly not part of the deposit of revolution or revolution, uh, deposit of revelation. Um, it can't be, you know, developed out of the deposit of res- revelation. And, um, it's kind of hard to see that, that you could see it as a definition of any teaching on morals other than a very sort of generic, vague, broad, this man is someone who in some manner ought to be morally imitated. Uh, you know, so it it kind of doesn't fit within that faith and morals formula that we tend to use now. Because in, I, I, in matters of faith and morals, when you disagree, you're not allowed to disagree with the church. You have to give yourself over to her teachings, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And, well, and, uh, yeah. There, well, there's a quite Yeah, there are some things that are matters of of holy obedience, and to, you know the, the you know giving the assent of the intellect and and that kind of stuff. And but it you seems know, like I mean, the, the the character of Joe Schmo when he died doesn't seem to be one of those things that would have anything to do with either the the faith of either my faith or my uh, obedience. To the Pope, you know. It's, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Even his authority. Yeah. Well, is something here's, that ought to be. Here's one of the things that um, that annoys me. People will say the Pope is only infallible in matters of faith and morals. That has actually not ever been defined. It has. Listen to the difference of these two statements. It has not been defined that the Pope is only infallible in matters of faith and morals, it has rather only been defined that the Pope is infallible in matters of faith and morals. In other words, it was a positive definition, not an exclusive or negative one. The definition of infallibility that came out of Vatican I in the uh, Declaration uh, Pastor Iternus did not exclusively define infallibility to be limited to matters of faith or morals rather the declaration chose to only treat of matters of faith and morals you get the difference yeah it's possible that he's infallible in other matters that just hasn't been explored and defined yet except that it has almost it's like universally believed so much that we would call it a simple matter of it it's like the Pope's declaration of a particular saint is not a matter of faith and morals, but it's a matter of faith as regards the character of the church to believe that the Pope's declaration of sainthood is infallible. Does that make sense? Say, say that one more time. Well, the Pope's declaration of a specific in, in individual. So, you know, when Pope Francis canonized... Um, you know, John the 23rd, Mm -hmm. uh, that canonization was not an act of definition of faith and morals that, you know, could be pointed to under say pastor Iternus as being infallible. However, it is so, it is so commonly and universally believed within the church that canonization is an infallible act of the church that the infallibility of canonization itself is 
could be treated as a matter of faith regarding the character of the church. Okay, so... Does that make sense? Let me try to see if I've got Put that this. into... Uh, right. Yeah. Um, for example, when Pope uh, Francis says that... <clears throat> when Pope Francis makes some kind of outrageous claim like the, the uh, plurality of religions is in God's plan, um, or the will of God, actually. Um, We know that's wrong. There's no... We absolutely know that it is incorrect to say that. And we would answer, well, he's not teaching from the chair of Peter. Right, and therefore... It's not like we're bound to say... Believe it. Yeah, yeah. Or, Or rather, and therefore does not fall within... The deck, the um, the statements regarding infallibility that were made in the declarations of Vatican One. Yeah. Okay. And uh, you could argue that the canonization kind of could be seen the same way, be- other than the fact that generally, almost universally, the Church and uh, the leader of the Church, the Pope is infallible of these matters. It's never been defined as such, and um, even in specific instances, it's not defined as such. It's kind of, well, it's more like, um, so you, you might take it, okay, the, the question isn't, is, is, is a particular canonization infallible, um, is a particular canonization part of the deposit of faith? No. Is the church's infallibility regarding the declaration of canonized saints part of the deposit of faith about the church itself? Yes, but not yes. a def- yeah, but not a defined, not defined. part. Exactly, okay. it's more like the common sense of the faithful because it's something that's just been believed and trusted implicitly by all Christians everywhere for the entire history of the church. So that's okay. the way. And now, if here's the thing, in, in fact, this would be uh, the fact that we're having this discussion. If if others were to have this discussion and it were to come up and were to become a big deal, this is the kind of controversy that could lead the church to actually making a definition regarding this. Yeah, because that's what happens is the church believes something, you know, in you know from from the the apostolic times. And then somebody challenges it, and then some of the faithful stop believing it, and there becomes a controversy. That's when the church defines a teaching about itself okay. or about you know God or or you know whatever. Um, okay. So this you know the the fact that we've got these these Vatican II saints that the the idea of canonizing them doesn't quite seem to square with the fruits of their pontificates uh this might actually be an uh, an occasion to for the church to issue some declarations um clarifying what we must believe regarding the church's act of canonization i would pray that pope francis isn't the one to uh to uh yeah to to, to carry oversee this that. out I just <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, because then that would be suspect for, you know, for its own reasons. Okay, yeah. so, but here's the thing. So that's 
that's the um, that's the whole canonization bit. So now we have the canonization of these two. Oh, one more thing I should say. Generally, the way canonization has occurred in the past, which uh, so, some of the modern changes to it sort of allow this to to be different. But the way it has occurred in the past is that what what is going on is that the Pope isn't selecting someone and then saying, hey, let's go ahead and canonize them and then give that canonization to people so that they can start praying for them. That's not what happens. What happens is people start praying to, people start uh, developing a a sort of a local cult of someone. And I use cult in the, yeah, some, someday we ought to explain yeah. the difference between what the church means by a cult of a saint and what we mean by, you know, like belonging to a cult or something. Anyway, people start praying to, Someone who's died who's particularly holy. For example, we we might pray to Brother Joe, right? You, you remember Brother Joe? You're right. a lot younger, you know, when he passed away. But I remember him. Uh, you know, saintly man. Um, so we might pray to Brother Joe. At some point, his cult may take on enough significance and 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 people that that they would get together and and propose his uh, cause for. Uh, beatification, or at least just being declared a servant of the Lord, or something like that. Right. Uh, and and that's how. And then when it comes to that final declaration of canonization, the Pope is what the Pope's really doing is blessing and giving universal affirmation throughout the Church of a movement that started locally and that already exists. Okay. That that's how it has generally been done now with some of the modern canonizations uh, you know if with each one of them you probably could find you know your your people who who were kind of supporting the cause like the you know the cult of of local uh uh admirers uh, of a person's sanctity who pray to him and that kind of stuff um but it's the way that the process is run now allows for example for a pope um, to pick people for canonization in order to say advance a certain cause because this is what this person's emphasis was or something like that. Yeah. Um, not. Yeah, I don't that, think you had a great big cult uh, praying to uh, Pope John the Paul the Sixth or John the. Th- yeah, I, I, I'm not Paul sure that either of them had a significant cult. Of yeah, the, and and that you know maybe they did. I could be wrong. I haven't you know looked into that, but but certainly exactly. not. I, I had never Francis heard of it. But you life. know, I did hear there like almost immediately after his death, there were people who started praying for. And I know that this is even yet another problematic canonization, but it's not problematic in the same way that that John the twenty third and Paul the sixth is. But say like. Uh, John Paul the John second yeah. almost immediately people you know decided hey I'm gonna pray to him and he developed his cult, a cult formed right after his he death. was even dead <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean he was I don't know it's, that's another discussion like you said yeah we'll have that some okay, other time was, but anyway that's the to, to, I just only bring that up as a contrast mm-hmm. I have never heard of a cult of John the 23rd um, right. Or, or you know, been in a crowd where people talked about him the way they talk about John Paul II. Um, so the anyway, that kind of 
it gives you the picture of canonization, how it was, how it developed, how it, you know, has generally been treated throughout, you know, the, the second millennium and how that's different from how it's been treated over, say the last, I don't know, 40 years, 30 years, yeah. uh, whatever. So now we have these two. Now, the thing about canonization is, first of all, it never has anything to do with the success of the person in their personal endeavors, either regarding administration or uh, material success. And when I say material success, I don't mean like accumulating money. I mean like accomplishing things. Like, for example, a, a, a priest might have wanted to start a um, uh, a movement to uh, help the poor in a certain area of the world, and he just kept at it and at it, and maybe it never came to fruition. That lack of success would not play into the question of canonization, uh, nor would his success if he had succeeded. Uh, canonization is purely supposed to be and intended to be an evaluation of the person's personal holiness. Uh, and in that regard, they, the, the phrase they use is a heroic practice of the virtues. And based on the determination that they practice the virtues heroically, the church then concludes that this person is, uh, can be declared universally and knowably to be in the beatific vision. Um, so that's really right. what's behind that. So from the, even, you know, from the point of view of, okay, John the 23rd, for example, initiated Vatican, he convoked Vatican II. He initiated it and he presided over the beginning of it. Uh, and it turned out to be a disaster for the church. Well, obviously we would look at that and say, all right, did he know that it was going to be, and did he intend for it to be a uh, undermining of the ancient church teachings and practices? Um, you know, I don't know what was said about that in in Taylor Marshall's book specifically, which you've read some of. I have not. I intend to read it. Yeah, I, I didn't. Just read haven't the gotten thing, there yet. Kind of yeah, but um, but, but it seemed like he when let it comes in to his the wolves. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But was it like unknowingly? Was it because he thought the wolves were sheep <laughs> or or right. other shepherds? Uh, or was it because he was um, being derelict uh, in his duties as, as the uh, pastor of the universal church? Um, that's the kind of question that would come into play when you say, okay, how do we square the disastrous um, fallout of Vatican II? with the canonization of the Pope who convened it. Okay. And that's... You have other little things. Mm -hmm. Like, um, give me a second here to get my ducks in order. Uh, yeah, page through the book. We can pause. <laughs> no, I don't even have the book. I, I was oh. reading it on an e-book. Um, John the 23rd in 1959 opened... Uh, uh, read the third secret of Fatima, which uh, Lucia had written and said that it wasn't supposed to be open until 1960. So she right. says, don't open this until 1960. 
1959, Pope John the Twenty-Third opens it and then puts it back, and then uh, in 1960 does not reveal it. Actually, I think she, he even think said something said like, she, "This is not for my pontificate," or something like right, that. Right? Right. Something like that. It says, uh, "We shall wait. I shall pray. I shall let you know what I decide." And then he didn't uh, reveal it, which it, she had specified that it be revealed in 1960. And he did not, first he was, a, I say disobedient. It's not like anyone had to uh, obey Sister Lucia. Uh, she, she had no authority, but she said this right. is what the mother wanted. Uh, Open yeah, this that, and there's a, talk there's about a, it in 1960. He opened it before that and then didn't reveal it in 1960. Right. In fact, no one revealed it until uh, Pope John Paul II. And then we've got this weird... Little things like that. It feels it, it the fact that it feels of, incomplete it and, and there's rumors of a second part and stuff like that. Right. There's that but, too. But yeah, the, 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 yeah the, it's, it's like, okay, he's... he's if he was uh, if he was so saintly, why didn't he trust Our Lady? Right, that's kind of what I mean, comes he, to my even mind. Even through no. the words, I mean, it's not a question of authority; it's not a question of obedience. But why didn't he trust Our Lady? Yeah, those are the other questions that kind of come to mind when I see uh, Saint John the Twenty Third. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's when I start to question. The fact that he was canonized by Pope Francis, whom we've already heard publicly uh, teach her heresy. Right. And I start to think about these saints and, you know, it's not for us to decide. I I know that. But in a, in a world right now that absolutely needs heroes yeah. and... Really needs some you, modern heroes. You're raising up the wrong ones. Yeah, yeah exactly. these are not the heroes. These definitely, you might go with Pope John Paul II, but certainly not with John the Twenty Third or Paul the Sixth. Yeah, I mean Paul the. Well, if, actually, if, Paul if the Sixth did give us Humana Vitae. I was going to say if there's a redeeming act of Paul the Sixth, it's Humana Vitae. But you know, Paul, from what I understand, and this. This is, is mostly listening to Taylor Marshall, so I don't know, you know, how balanced it is. There may be other information that, that you know, that could balance this out a little bit. But from what I understand, um, Paul VI's own history prior to his papacy, um, in terms of, of his writings and his leanings and, and mm -hmm. so forth, um, there was good reason to expect that he was um, actually going to end up coming out with something very different from Humanae Vitae. That um, it was a shock to those who wanted the church to uh, embrace co uh, contraception. Yeah. That he came out with Humanae Vitae because they thought he was their man. Yeah, they thought this is it. Uh, it, so it, the same one way people could, are waiting for Pope Francis to do it right now. Yeah, I mean it's <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of like the the um and and the only reason I bring that up is because again it's like okay Humanae Vitae was a great thing but was that his doing or was that the Holy Spirit? You know what I mean? Right. I, I mean it was it was it the Holy Spirit because 
he, uh, you know, willingly gave into the movements of the Holy Spirit or was it the Holy Spirit taking charge into in order to avoid the church falling into error uh, that would have if 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 he had let this pope up to his own uh, thoughts and movements and inclinations. These questions are real. These are the kinds of things that ought to have been deliberated prior to um, approving him, certainly for canonization. But the Pope that approved him, I think we know that he would be more friendly to the kinds of stuff that, that Paul VI might have written, might have said, might have thought that led others to think he was going to embrace contraception yeah. than, than he is to maybe humani vitae itself. I, you know, I, I don't want to judge his mind and, and heart and say this is it, but when you look at some of the things that the Pope says and some of his, where his priorities seem to lie, um, you don't think that he would have given a whole lot of um, consideration or... or um, uh, yeah. What I'm trying to think of the way he, he he wouldn't have have balanced his consideration of of canonization with okay but wait a minute he you know this guy was deviating in some of his earlier writings from the church's teaching did he really have a heroic spirit of obedience you know where was the heroic right. virtue and you know what are the virtues that he practiced heroically. Uh, I think that should be a, a question that somebody should be able to answer explicitly. I mean, even, um, you know, one of the well, other they, saints that Francis canonized, this uh, uh, Oscar Romero down in... Um, um, you mentioned uh, him. I don't know who yeah. that is. He's, he's one of the, you know, Latin American um, Catholic priests. I, you know, my, my, when I see the stuff he says, I get a little bit queasy. It's like, oh, man, you know, this is liberation theology, but... He was targeted, and he knew he was targeted um, by the regimes down there. And he practiced, at the very least, the heroic virtue of courage, continuing to be a Catholic priest and to speak boldly uh, in spite of that, to the point where he was uh, killed, uh, whether it was out of hatred for the church. You know, in order to be martyred, it's like you can't only have to have been killed because you're a priest or as a priest or, you know, because you're, it has to be out of hatred for the church. There, there's a, a sort of a subtlety there. Okay. In fact, that's when we when we do Joan of Arc in one of our months, we'll talk about that, that she was not considered a martyr because her death was not out of hatred for the church. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know where um, Oscar Romero um, falls in regards to that question, but there's certainly things you can look at and say, wow, that's a virtue, a holy virtue that he practiced heroically, regardless yeah. of, of, of how easily his theology might sit with you. Okay. And so that's yeah. the kind of thing where, all right, you ought to at least, at the very least, be able to answer that question when somebody's being canonized. Where is the heroic virtue? The, I don't know where what, it is. In, in, what was in the shining two. light here that we could all look at and say, yes, we should all be like that? Yeah, yeah. We should emulate his X. We should emulate her Y. We should emulate this guy's Z and so forth. Well, here, I'm sure I'm not the only person who starts questioning these things. 
And I, I think there's a couple things that we could say about right now and these circumstances and the fact that this pope is the one who canonized them. Mm-hmm. We've never had two popes, uh, two legitimate popes, wearing white at the same time. Oh, that's true. Uh, we've had there we've have been had false popes, popes and there have been competing you know, claimants for the, the papacy. papacy. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, but that's not what this is. This is something very a little unique. bit different. Yeah, it, it's uh, a pope abdicated, uh, and 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 the cardinals met and and per the recognized yeah. process, elected another pope. Um, we as lay people, and and as you know, as not. Ecclesiastical ecclesiologists, maybe I was going to say ecclesiastical yeah. theologians or whatever, but but I think ecclesiologists would be the better term. Um, we don't have the training or the calling or the the competency to try to pronounce on what this might be uh, mean. Is this a real situation that, uh, or, or is has this set up kind of a uh, a false papacy of some sort, you know. Right. But it's It's one of those things that could be, but yeah, it's, it's, it's not our place right now. To, it's it's going to be the future generations who the figure church, it out. actually. Right. Not guys like me and right. you, but the church will have to say something about this in the future. We don't know what that's going to be because, yeah. and, and we don't really know what direct. We do know that the Pope, the guy, the acting Pope right now has brought uh, idols into the Vatican. He's brought idols into the Vatican. He's made statements of material heresy. Um, and he has caused significant confusion and division um, within the both the hierarchy and among the faithful. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, what, what else can you say? The, the, that's the thing. It's like, okay, as a matter of juridical... Um, action yeah we still have to obey him as the pope even if it might turn out later down the road that somebody figures out that he's not really the pope we still have to act as though he is at this point um maybe down the line somebody will figure out that oh yeah a pope can abdicate and maybe they'll you know maybe we'll have a a a sort of new habit of of how things run in rome maybe we'll get to a point where all the popes have developed a you know like like a thousand years from now maybe it's known that if a pope happens to live to the age of 85 he's going to retire or 90 or whatever he's going to retire or something like that but it's one of those things that no matter how sure you are about what the condition is you're not sure first of all Mm -hmm. and second of all you know what i compare to is um when you've got, say, a girl named Jennifer who gets married, and from the outside everything looks fine, but then later you find out that she was pregnant, and maybe John, the father, said, if you don't marry me, I will make sure the child grows up a bastard. I will ruin your family. Your dad will lose his job. All kinds of terrible things will happen if you don't marry me. And Mary or Jennifer marries him, with the intention, the second I'm able to get free of this, I will. Mm-hmm. So they marry, they get divorced because she's able to get free from him, and then she meets Joe, and she wants to marry Joe. 
But they have to get in an almond. Now, yeah. anyone who knows her knows that she's not really married to this guy. Right. But you can't proceed on that. They can't get married until the until church they get declared the statement. Right. The declaration of an all. Exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. That's that's so, a, that's a good way to uh, to look at it. You, you know, you, you've got to accept the the you've got to go along with the accepted appearance of things um, until the proper things have taken place to to declare it declare that appearance null and, and that could be guys that could be a hundred years from now oh yeah yeah that's the, we, mean, we have we have no reason to expect it's going to happen uh, in our lifetime you made the point a couple uh, episodes ago that that god gives us his word through history oh right and right. this god could be with, one of those hi- times it, yeah it's just you know we, we we can't do anything about it. We still have to treat him as our Pope. And we still have to pray for him. Well, we would pray for him no matter what. But he's still the yeah, Pope. We pray for him. We pray for his good intentions. I have had to modify my morning prayer. My morning prayer always included the intentions of the Pope. Now I have to say the good intentions of the Pope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, but yeah, that, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And the... the um, the thing is, to the extent that that his actions cause anguish uh, for us, all right, it's we don't know how that's going to end up reflecting on his soul when his judgment day comes, but we do know that even that anguish is an opportunity to offer something up in union with the cross. Uh, we right. should not imagine that our anguish at the, um, I wish I could think of words. Uh, I think I must have had a stroke one day because I can no longer think of words. We should not imagine that our anguish <laughs> at the, uh, you know, the, the, the kinds of shenanigans that are going on with the current uh, pontificate are somehow less or even comparable to, for example, the anguish that Christ suffered in the Garden of Eden, or uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Um, you know, especially, I mean, Christ, his own crucifixion coming, and think of this, he was aware, because he's God, of all the people throughout history who would be indifferent to his suffering on the cross. Yeah. And, and even, the, even future to imagine. Folks. So for us to think, oh my, this is so bad to be in these times. Well, okay, yes, it is, but it's still nothing compared to Jesus in the garden. Yeah. So, just and a little it, bit it, of perspective as far as there. Here in America goes, it's nothing compared to what's going on in China and the, the oh, sellout gosh. that occurred yeah. there. No kidding. Uh, yeah, and expanding. I mean, Hong Kong. I mean, there there were people who. You know, which, you know, we, I think it's shameful that, that we even allowed Hong Kong. Uh, you know, we, we should have come to Hong Kong's defense much earlier in history yeah. um, and not let it become an official um, province or whatever you want to call it of China. But um, but, yeah, I mean, they were used to to living a certain way and having certain freedoms. And then suddenly China comes and says, OK, now we're going to put these officials in office and. You're no longer able to do this, that, and the other. Yeah, it's a it's a bad situation, which 
actually part of that's coming up in the news. Yeah. Um, so, canonization of John the Twenty Third, Paul the Sixth. Um, you know, it. I I would like to. I guess one of the things is that we owe it to the dignity of the office of the church to declare canonizations to at least do some reading and try to find out what is the heroic virtue that these two led that might justify their canonizations. Yeah. I I think that's, that's incumbent on us. So I'm going to take that on in a, in, in some future podcast, we'll bring this back around and I'll try to make the case for their canonizations. Okay. And I'll play devil's advocate. All right. Which will be very <laughs> we'll have, easy. We'll have our own little trial. By the way, you know, oh gosh, you know, that reminds me of a movie. Um, okay, I'm going to completely Whoa, sideline us here. Before you, you're not allowed to talk about movies anymore. Why not? I, I watched Canadian Bacon. <laughs> did you? I did not laugh once. You didn't think that was funny? I, I didn't even smile hardly. It was so... I don't even know how to describe it. You know what? It. You didn't. You didn't think it was funny when the cop made it. How long ago did you see this? Huh? How long ago did you see it? I've watched it twice. I watched it um, in college, and then I watched it later. um, Like I don't know. I was after you knew who more Shelbyville at the time with my family. It was. You didn't think it was funny when the cop made the guy paint the insults in two languages on the truck. I mean, it's just stuff like that. Stole that from Life of Brian. Okay, I don't think they they might have uh, uh, Michael Moore. By the way, you know he's the one who directed it. Might have stolen yeah. it from Michael Bryan. It was still funny, and the part when they're they're running down the hill and they keep running into the the Canadians who are sitting on the hillside, and as they're yeah. knocking the Canadians over, the Canadians keep apologizing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they're. I guess. But you know, I, but the thing is, I I knew some Canadians when I worked up in Michigan. Do do you realize? I mean, this is the. I mean, this is apt. This is making apt fun of Canadians. Do you realize yeah, that? Yeah, they are kind of. Yeah. yeah, if if you if a guy comes up and and engages you in a fight, punches you, or or punches your wife, and you hit him back to defend yourself or your wife, you are still guilty of a crime in Canada. I didn't know that. Anyway. All right, so you didn't find it funny. Well, you know what? That's because I watched I, I uh, Strange Brew. Uh, the first time I tried to watch it, it's like, man, I cannot get into this. Uh, yeah. After we had that podcast, I went and watched it. Um, I had like two beers before I started it. Um, yeah. I actually thought it was funny that time. Yeah, it's weird. I went through a If I watch it I again, I'll probably think stupid. it's stupid. But so. then I watched it again, and I just couldn't stop laughing. And the, <laughs> I, I guess uh, it depends I, I, on how depends serious on you take things at yeah. that time in your life. That could be. That could be. All right. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> that's about all we got to say about it. I think. We, yeah, I'll bring up my movie next time. The jury's not out. All right. Oh yeah, you wanted to. Okay. okay. What that's movie okay. were can, you going to talk? No, about? I can't even think of the name of the movie. Is the problem. So I'll, I'll okay. have to research it and I'll bring it up next time. Okay. It's one of those chilling movies. All right. Like like a horror movie? Uh, not quite, but, but ish, you know? Okay. Okay. 
So news. You know what movie I was watching before uh, we started this? Me and Sam were watching uh, for a few dollars more. He had never seen it. That's the one with oh, Lee really? Cleef. Um, yeah. And that's the one. Um, wait, a few dollars more. That one. Um, that's got. This a is pretty... not the two sides of town. This, this is, is the is one with what? the two bounty hunters. That one's got a pretty intense uh, rape scene in it. Uh, you know what? We have not gotten there, but I. Because that's when she kills herself, the sister. Yeah, it is. We haven't even. We've just started watching. I'll tell you what. They make you really hate that guy from the very beginning. Yeah. When he kills the the girl and and there's the 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 little boy, yeah, he's just just out and out rotten. It, yeah. I don't know. That was pre Pulp Fiction, but uh, they did a good job of um, making. I, it was before it was cool to kill people, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, that is a good. So movie, what are we, we going to uh, do? News could be intense for kids. Yeah, let's do some yeah. current events. Okay, uh, so we were talking about Hong Kong. Uh, they've arrested 300 people on the 1st of July march uh, after the passing of the new national security law. The new law punishes crimes considered as subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign forces with up to life in prison. It also allows the extradition of those people to the mainland. Oh, Wow. For, yeah. So they're tried right. in the mainland instead of in Hong Kong. Um, I, I, I only put that in the news because it's one of those things that, um, look, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a city that was almost a tiny little America, and it's just yeah. all of a sudden is now communist, and people ought to be paying attention to this. It, it, hugely. I mean, the, the Hong Kong, um, in spite of being just one city, um, was like a, 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 to me, it was kind of a shining example of the idea that, that, um, people are producers of wealth, uh, not, uh, not just, uh, sinks of resources that, because right. Hong Kong, with an extremely high population density, which you you know in the the modern liberal in, uh, narrative regarding um, human population and need for population control and that kind of stuff, Hong Kong should be just one big ghetto, but it right. wasn't. It, it was wasn't. a financial c- center, yeah, with a huge it, population density, and, and and people are getting killed there now, and people are being arrested for disagreeing with the government and i think that's why target or uh, why china targeted it because i mean you know eventually because it well, yeah you know, china sure. china is trying to suppress the idea that you have to be free in order to be prosperous and this was like a shining counter example that was right on their doorstep yeah it's a shame uh, and it's a shame that america's not doing more for it, it. So I don't pretend I, to know what is going on behind closed doors that, you know, but it, it's kind of, it's like one of those areas that it's really hard to think what could America do? Cause like, I mean, you can send in, in fighter jets and bombers into Kuwait and Iraq and stuff. You can't really do that in Hong Kong. Right. You've got it's the city. It's not the same kind of situation. China. Yeah. So it's, you couldn't fit enough troops to defend it against China into the right. city itself. 
it, yeah. it, it's weird. It, it's, so, just a real tragedy yeah. that Hong Kong is so, uh, falling to this. Uh, German lawmakers have uh, agreed to end nuclear power by 2022. Agreed and to whom? Or just decided? With each other, I guess. Okay. Uh, and they agree to end the use of coal by 2038. Wait. So I guess that means by 2038, they will be powerless. They're going to be, <laughs> they're going to all be on solar power. They're going to be importing power. They're going to be importing yeah. power from the rest of the world is what's going to happen. Sweden's going to be selling them power. Who's, 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 who else is close to Germany? <laughs> it's silly. They're going to be buying power from uh, the French and the Italians. From, from Russia's, who they're going to be buying it from. Well, that's true. That's true. They they're just right bought on, that uh, oil from Russia's border. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The whole thing is silly. I, I guess, it is silly. It's just, it's lip service. Let's see. There's, and, there's uh, Poland. Poland's who they're going to be buying power from. Yeah, because Poland will probably start, well... Poland hopefully won't sink into all this crap that's going on with the other European nations. Yeah. So, um, uh, Trump announced uh, that he's going to be building the National Garden of American Heroes. Uh, I know that's awesome. You know, it's like okay, you know, you idiots taking down statues. You know what? We're not just going to put up with it and wring our hands and say, oh my, oh my. We're going to double down and, and actually make more, more monuments. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. For the first time, scientists at 500 meter aperture spherical telescope. Okay. Do you know that telescope? meter? That's half a kilometer. Okay. Half a mile telescope. I guess half they've a got kilometer. a huge set not a half of a, I mean, it's more like... It's to create one telescope, right? And oh, this, so it's multiple multiple pieces. Okay. Yeah, and they discover uh, neutral hydrogen atoms outside of the Milky Way. Okay, wait a minute. What, what is a neutral hydrogen atom? It's about point three miles, by the way. So, um, neutral hydrogen atom? Do they? I guess they mean electrically neutral, like it's it's not stripped of its electron. Uh, so it's it's not charged, and so That's is this a radio? Is this know. a radio telescope? Hold on. What's the name of it? All right, uh, five hundred meter aperture Mirror. spherical telescope. It's a giant. Five hundred meter. Yeah. Uh, radio it's a radio telescope. telescope. Yep, nicknamed uh, Tianyan Tianyan radio telescope. Yeah, it's, it's southwest um, of uh, China. Okay. Uh, so it's a radio telescope. So, so I guess, I mean, I guess they're talking guess, about because it's such a huge aperture. They're what what they're pointing out is that it has and and but you know shown in performance has the resolution to be able to detect the I guess the electron move because when an electron is zipping around the proton in a hydrogen atom, even though the whole thing together is neutral. There's still the yeah. movement of an electron, which is giving off a tiny bit of electromagnetic energy. And I guess they're saying they can detect that of if, a single hydrogen atom. They said outside the Milky Way, though? So a non-neutral hydrogen atom would be one with, say, an extra electron? 
Well, typically it'd be one le- without an electron. It would just be a proton. So then, then it's not really an atom, is it? Yeah, protons are considered hydrogen atoms. Okay. In in the one of the things that I learned listening to the uh, titanium uh, physics podcast yeah. is how astronomers and cosmologists have different names for things. So it's like gas just means hydrogen and helium, and um, what was it like? Ice means oxygen. Ice means like methane, water, and, and a couple of other things. Regardless of whether they're actually frozen, even if they're in yeah. a gaseous state, they're considered ice. <laughs> and then, uh, like metal is considered everything else, even if it's gas or whatever. It's like <laughs> they just have these Oxygen very broad metal. categories that that are, are very different than how we think of things here on Earth. So, okay. Uh, but but yeah, a, a a hydrogen atom, you know, a ionized hydrogen atom is just a proton all by itself. A neutral hydrogen atom would be a proton with its corresponding electron. Yeah, I have to... I don't know. Just because... That's surprising. Is this, this just is coming out of China, China or, right? I, I just kind of yeah. question this. But me too. I, I, that's what I was going to say. I mean, do we have... Do we have an international team of scientists who are who are talking about this, or is this all coming out of China? Uh, if it's all coming out of China, I question it. If there's if there's an international team, then okay, I'm I'm I'll give it a little bit of uh, credence. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, you know what? That is the only space news that I can find. It's cool. Um, well, you know what? I've, I've got some space news. Oh, okay, um, cool. So there is, and this is probably old news. Maybe people have already heard about it. Um, but there's a uh, planet uh, that they've identified in Europe. The planet's not in Europe. Scientists in, Euro- in Europe have identified say. it. Uh, 390 light years away. Um, I guess it was reported on March 11th. This planet is one of those where the same side always faces the sun. The planet is very heavy in iron, and the face of the planet that's towards the sun is so hot that iron is vaporized, and the face wow. that's opposite the sun is hot enough to keep it liquid, but not hot enough to vaporize it, and there's high, high winds on this planet. So basically, on the side of the planet away from the sun, it's continuously raining molten iron. Wow, talk about a violent planet. I know. It's like it's like the whole planet is one big murder hole. You know what a murder hole is. Yeah. That's the in the castles. Yeah. So it's like, man. <laughs> I thought that was cool. The kinds of things that uh, are out there that God created that that we didn't know existed and there's a lot more that we won't know exists until after you people won't discover till after we're dead but there's just so much amazing things there yeah yeah i know i know well you know that's one of the things that that makes me wonder um i I, i've read a couple of people who suggest that um you know because because you have statements that you know all things shall pass away but my words shall not pass away and then you have things like a new heaven and a new earth and that kind of stuff but you have people who have proposed that the new earth is, you know, when the time comes, it's going to be a renewing of the current existing cosmos, that the whole cosmos is going to be absorbed into a glorified reality rather than simply ending and going away. 
And that's what the new earth is. Which would mean then that we all, because we'll have angelic powers then, to go anywhere in the universe that we like. Yeah. And we'll be able to discover all this stuff. It could be like, uh, well, I don't know if we'll have angelic powers. We don't. We will have some that. powers that are similar to angelic powers, but but I think immediate locomotion will be like one of the, you know, stuff like that. You think that? You think so? I think so, yeah. Okay, I hope so. I, I Even maybe... in our glorified body, I mean, the angels are only spirits, which is why they can do immediate locomotion, but I think in our glorified bodies, we'll have that even bodily. Well, when I, when I think about the fact that um, we're talking about eternity... Then I think, okay, so what's the big deal if it took us a year to get to another planet? Well, there's that too. You know, we just keep, if we, <laughs> okay, if we uh, have a way of moving. I'll spend 10,000 okay. years getting there, but so what? Yeah, I'll eternity. meet you there in 30 years from now. Let's meet on that one planet uh, by Beetlejuice and we'll have a party there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. All right, so uh, Michigan reports no new deaths from COVID-19. Connecticut reports zero deaths from COVID-19 for the first time. Since when? Like new new Uh, daily? Like, like I guess the this week, this day. Okay. Deaths. Right. uh, Yeah, the daily the daily death rate has been going way down all over the place. Yeah, and and they just keep talking about the the number of infections going up. Which it is, but no, it's not the number of infections, the number of infection cases. It's a yeah. case once you get detected and entered into the system as a detected infection. And the number of infections has probably it. been high all along. Yeah, that's what I've always thought. That's what uh, we do more said testing. You have more cases. Yeah, we've been saying that the whole time. But the deaths just keep going lower and lower, and it's driving Democrats crazy trying to hide that. Yeah, yeah. And so they to, just to keep shouting that we need to wear masks. Uh, Ohio passed a law. We have to wear masks oh, outside. I saw that. How stupid. But Cincinnati announced, Cincinnati police announced, look, don't call us for masks. We're not arresting anyone or giving to... Do not call us if somebody's not no. wearing a mask. I gotta call the say, health department. This this is this is a good way for the police. I mean, you know, it, okay. And all we've had some criticism for police departments generally, and even for the Cincinnati police in the past. Yeah. Other police departments are doing the same thing. They're they're what they're doing is standing up and they're saying, we're not going to just be tools of a governor who wants to issue executive orders that are outside of the law. Yeah. Which this I say, this reform. is a good way to to get the back the blue people on your side, is to show yeah. that you're not just tools too. Yeah. Um, let's see. So there were uh, during the Fourth of July weekend there were there were shootouts and violent things going on everywhere all across the U.S. Oh gosh, I know. It was terrible. It was nothing and, happened here, but. Uh, did you did you hear L.A. had had announced uh, it's going to be illegal doing any fireworks? And they said <laughs> that if if you do fireworks, we're going to send the police and you're going to get arrested. And did you see the videos? 
Yeah, there's videos. <laughs> the whole city lit up. I, I don't know if you remember this. Back back in the first Gulf War, the the Kuwait War, uh, and and we entered a phase of the war where the words that the officials were using were shock and awe. We're going to just give them such a blaze of constant fire. And they had planes going, and the planes were uh, launching missiles. That was and they were the and they had you know because some of the planes are mounted with gatlings and they've got tracers in them and it's like the night sky is just lighted up with yeah. ordnance and missiles just over that, you know that was some actually of these, G.W. Bush that, that was the was, second war no that, that was, was the, the first, second Iraqi war that was not Desert Storm no that was the first war that I because I was in positive. college when they were doing it I am positive on this I. Unless, unless there's two of I them, think, because I, I think, know for a fact I think DW that George copied Bush uh, said shock and awe, oh, and yeah. we were all wanting to see these images of the bombing, and it was it, it looked like L.A. did. That's what I was saying. This this yeah. uh, night sky in L.A. looked like the shock and awe campaign in the Middle East. Right. I mean, it was just constant and all over it. You didn't see anything like that in any other city in the United States. Yeah, and and most people consider this a shout-out from Americans who said, we've had it with this. Uh, you know, we want our freedom, and we're not going to put up with it. So that's how a lot of people are taking this. Here's the thing. You know, I... Okay, that law went into effect uh, for Ohio like two days ago, something like that. Mm-hmm. I haven't worn a mask since then. I go to the grocery store. I'm like one, maybe two or three out of a hundred people not wearing a mask. And I don't understand why people are so quick to lie down belly up in public. Yeah. I, it drives me crazy. I just felt like grabbing people saying take the mask off why are you bending over to this guy mm-hmm. why are you doing it just don't do it i was kidding I, it really bothered me that that many people kind of just bent over made you it. disgusted with with the people around you didn't it right yeah i just i just i looked at everybody with contempt oh i uh, can't do nothing about it i guess people are people are cowards yeah that's because i know yeah. not everybody agreed with this yeah, because they weren't wearing a mask before the law. That's the thing. If if it took the law to make you wear the mask, that's when you're a coward. Yeah, for wearing the mask. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. Okay. This this is another point that I just these are the kinds of things these people who like are wearing masks right now really need to pay attention to this. Um. There's been an increase in arrests in Vietnam, uh, and they recently sentenced a 29-year-old Facebook user to eight years in prison for making anti-government posts. Wow. Eight years in prison and then three years uh, house arrest. Just for making anti-government posts. Yeah, I. You know what? That's where we're going to be. He criticized Tochiman. Yeah, if if people don't learn to um, start people standing up, people need to understand that that these Antifa and Black Lives Matter. That's this where is they want what us. They want. Yeah, this, this is, is where, where that's we're leading. That's and the face that Black of Black Lives Matter has has identified themselves as communists. Mm-hmm. 
which I don't understand why they're hooked up with Anifa, who claims to be anarchists. Although they're not anarchists, they're fans. they're not really. They're the same. They're the same mob rule. It, you know, the thing about Antifa is that it's technically not an organization. It's just a movement. There might be there might be local groups who I who are organizations who identify themselves as Antifa organizations, but there's no single global Antifa organization, and. That's what makes it difficult to do things like branded as a terrorist yeah. organization and that kind of stuff. But um, the thing is, as a movement, it's not anarchist; it's mob rule, and there's a yeah. difference. That's and a, ultimately, a huge difference. they're they're just feeding into the the liberal desire for a totalitarian oligarchy. Yeah. Uh, Little sisters of poor, I, I guess. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld their uh, case. Yeah, I, I thought it was over with already, but I guess uh, it did go to the Supreme Court, and they were backed up in a, a seven to two decision, which kind of surprised and here's, me. Well, here's the thing. Here's the 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 um, the caveat, the cautionary part of this. What was actually backed up seven to two is the president's right to grant them an exception, not their really? right to have the exception. Oh, yeah, different, well, little bit of a different face on good. it, isn't it? It is yeah. exactly because what we really need is a court that's going to realize that the fact that this case is even being argued means the government has already overstepped its powers. Right. That's the Supreme Court decision I'm waiting for that I fear isn't going to come. Yeah. Um, okay. This is... I, I don't know where this is going, but the court rules in McGirt versus Oklahoma and Sharp versus Murray that nearly half of Oklahoma is Native American tribal land. I heard about that. I don't know what... Did they, does what? that mean they're going to take away a bunch of the land and give it to a reservation? What does that even mean? Or does that mean people who are currently living in a bunch of cities are now going to be under rule of the tribal leaders? Yeah, that's weird. This, this is a weird... Know. Yeah, the, I, We're going to have to just wait and see for the fallout of this one. And there's uh, one, two, three, four, five different tribes involved here. Yeah, which tribes get which parts? Uh, yeah. Well, they've got a little area kind of separated, so, but are you telling me those are the only tribes that... Okay, that's another thing about these reservations that kind of irritate me, because they're, the, the power of the reservations distributed to the different tribes. Mm -hmm. But when the more you read about Indians, the more you see that there were thousands of tribes. Right. And not many of them are represented in these... Uh, uh, reservations. So these reservations represent giving certain select tribes far more yeah. land and power than they ever had under um, pre-American expansion. Right. So, I, I, I don't know. The whole thing, again, I've always thought that it's time to, it's time to stop this. You yeah. give them citizenship and tell them this is America. Well, I don't know. Split the land up between all of them and say, "There, it's your land," and that's it. You know, 
If you don't want to be an American citizen, then go to Canada. Right. We won. It, drop it. And we I have get, good I things to offer. It's not like, uh, you know, we won and we yeah. want to oppress you, you know? Right. <laughs> Although, I mean, it's not you know, like I, I guess if Biden gets elected, then, then it would probably be a better, uh, better, uh, uh, proposition for the Indians to stay on the reservations, but assuming yeah. Biden doesn't get elected, it's actually a good proposition to just join yeah, the United it's States. A good life. <laughs> Much better than they would have had. Yeah. Um, my bell is telling me that you're about to run out of power. I might. How do I do this? Uh oh. Better wrap this up. There's got to be a way to plug this thing in. I don't even know. Anyway. Uh, I'll, I'll just call you on the phone regular back if if, uh, if I lose you on the thing. No, there it is. Hold on. Okay. I'll just have to talk like this. Oh, okay. Um, okay, well, there was one more thing. Uh, there's a bus driver in France mm-hmm. who refused to wear a face mask. Okay. And I guess a bunch of a mob attacked him. Oh and wow! Left him for brain dead, and then uh, oh, he man. just died. I, these people are disgusting. Yeah. Did you? There was a statue in California. Uh, who's the saint that they're all tearing down? Junipero Serra. Yeah. yeah. So there was one that a group of around eighty Catholics decided we're going to defend. Mm-hmm. And uh, about three hundred fifty, maybe protesters. Like started running at him, yeah, and uh, they fended him off. And I heard an interview. I think Taylor Marshall was actually the one interviewing him. Uh, he said they were. It was a bunch of. Uh, it was a bunch of kids. College a bunch student of type. Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of snowflakes. He said, "I don't know why oh. people are afraid of them." <clears throat> oh, you mean the protesters were snowflakes? Right. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So it wasn't. <laughs> well, you know, not to undermine the heroism involved. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> even in large numbers, I mean, a blizzard can do a lot of damage. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they've they've killed people. So uh, yeah. But even though they're snowflakes, they're they're when there still were volatile. eighty men there, they they backed down and and walked and away. Went away. From... Okay. Well, good for them. Yeah. Uh, that's all I got for the news. All right, I got a lot of nonsense stuff going on. Okay. This, I gosh, this is a week for nonsense. Okay, so uh, in Italy, <laughs> you have to have a good reason to be out anyway, even if you're wearing a mask. You're supposed to stay in your home. Because um, of COVID. Yeah, because of the COVID thing, you have to stay in your home unless you have a good reason. Walking a dog is a good reason. A lady received a uh, 400 euro fine amounts to about 440 American dollars from the Roman police for breaking their uh, strict lockdown because she was out walking her turtle. Not a good reason to be out, according to the Italian police. So a dog is okay, but a turtle, <laughs> turtle not is okay. not. I, I don't know. Is this a case of speciesism? I don't know. I'll leave it up to the, uh, I don't, to the liberals to figure that one out. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I guess that'd be the best word for it. But why is All right. a dog more important than a turtle? That's right. Uh, in New Hampshire, a police chief um, was being, uh, I guess, decommissioned um, 
kind of a cost-cutting thing because they didn't have enough money. He was told that he was losing his job and he was going to have to turn in his uniform and uh, badge and so forth. So yeah. he he stripped his uniform off, including his pants, right there on the uh, in the station, and walked outside. Kind of pulled a St. Home. Francis, huh? That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> Here, I don't want anything to do with you guys. That's right. <laughs> I I don't understand how the cops are surviving right now. I mean, what, what I got to what are they saying to each other? Yeah, exactly. You know? it, Is they getting dressed? Uh, in the in the squad room, getting ready to head out. I mean, man, these people don't even want us here. We're just trying to. I know there are a lot of cops who are jerks, but there are a lot of them who are just like we're just trying to trying to keep law and order. We're just trying to keep people from killing each other, and they don't want us. That's gotta that's gotta be hard. Mm-hmm. All right. In Texas, San Antonio, the Texas Division of Emergency Management, uh, local chief uh, Nim Kid N I M K I D D, says it's time for people to wear their masks while they're in their homes. Huh? We still need people to wear the mask kid? in public. No, this this is a guy who's in charge of the, uh, the Texas Division of Emergency Management. We still need so people they- to wear the mask in public. Yeah, I guess they can take uh, them but, off and, uh, and just wear them. We need to house. do that when we're in our homes also. I it this it's as if there's this like frenzied race among uh officials, both bureaucratic and elected. Yeah. To compete to see who can be the biggest moron. That's sure the only way I have to describe it. Like it. Yeah, doesn't it? It some of these things, like, I, I never thought I would see these kinds of things happening. And I would never see yeah. people hear Go along it, with it and accept it as if it's normal. Yeah. And yet you have people bowing right down to it. I, you talk about the emperor's new clothes. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, who's it? What's it going to... I guess Trump... Well, not even Trump right now. You know, Trump's not acting as the little kid. Trump's not even saying these people are naked. Yeah. Nobody's doing it. Exactly. It, it's, it's, uh, I mean, Trump keeps beating the drum. All right. It's time to go back. It's time to get back yeah. to normal. But, but yeah, he's, he's, uh, well, he, he has called him out and said, you know, okay, see, you guys are lying. Um, but he kind of waits for the facts to come out before yeah. he, instead of calling out the obvious, he waits for like medical facts and stuff to come out. You know, here's the thing about, uh, I, Rush Limbaugh mentioned that, um, Trump's approval rating for the way he handled the COVID virus is, uh, 65% disapproved. Now I see if you asked me if I approve of, of, Trump's handling of the COVID-19, I would say, no, I disapprove. Yeah, but, but it's, it doesn't mean sh- that you think he he was, uh, he should have locked down more and stuff like that. Right. It, I he think should have urged the people, governors to open up more. Yeah, I, I think too many people are looking at this as idiots who think Trump should have done more. Oh, instead and of people. what it is, is people like us. That's what I, I kind of think this is. He allowed himself to be pushed a little bit too much by the so-called experts. 
and still seems to be allowing it to happen. I don't know what yeah. he can do at this point, but um, if you ask me, I'd say, yeah, I disapprove of the way Trump's handling this. Still going to vote yeah. for him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'm going to happily vote for him this year. Um, okay. Next one is a bit of a... Uh, <laughs> just I don't know. In a way, it's kind of heart heartwarming. Uh, the couple this is in New York. Beat some yeah. very long odds when they had their second child born on a leap day. Two children born four years apart on February 29th without wow. intending it to happen. I Just would be very neat. angry if I were born in a leap year. <laughs> well, what they do, what a they said day. they're going to do is the, the one kid is going to be have his birthday on the 28th. The other's going to have his on March 1st so that they both get their separate birthdays. And, and yeah. every time leap year comes around, they're going to make a really big hoopla out of it. Yeah, the giant party. So, yeah. <laughs> they're like... You know, when, kind of a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan there, though, right? Birthday or their sixteenth birthday party when they're four years old. Yeah, that's uh, that's a, like a Gilbert and Sullivan thing. Yeah. Huh. All right. Uh, Mad Mike Hughes, sixty-four, a explorer in Daredevil, self-styled explorer in Daredevil. Um, he tragically died when his homemade rocket crashed in the Mojave Desert. He was on a um, mission to prove that the Earth was flat. What? <laughs> I don't know how. Is this like a, an evil Knievel type guy? Or? I don't know. It, it says he gained fame when he uh, jumped the Lincoln Town Car stretch limousine 103 feet, uh, certified by Guinness World Records as the longest limousine ramp jump. Later tried to prove the Earth is flat by building rockets in a quest to launch himself past the boundary between the Earth's atmosphere and outer space. I don't know what so, he thought. He what, How was he going to survive? I, so he was going to get in... Are, are you talking like one of those backpack jets? I, I don't have any pictures to tell me that. It just says okay. it was but a homemade that's the way it says. rocket I mean, and it killed him. Um, or maybe he just had a, an, an actual rocket ship that he made, like in what was that uh, one show with uh, what's his name? Something Farmer, the astronaut Farmer. Did you ever see that? No. It's got uh, oh, he's one of my favorite actors. I can't think of his name. Uh, the guy up. who was in um, he was in everything. Um, <laughs> the Fugitive. John Wade. Oh, uh, Harrison Ford. No, not Harrison Ford, the other one. Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, okay. Tommy Lee Jones in the farmer, astronaut farm or something like that. Huh. And he uh, made a rocket that would go up and I guess it was going to orbit the Earth. Um, like a homemade thing. And Well, this guy wasn't going to orbit the Earth because he didn't think the Earth was round. He didn't think it was round. He was going to I don't go know what he was... I don't know what he was going to prove. Yeah, and then do what? Take a picture of, of a non-round Earth? And then I don't, know, I don't know what his intention was. Come back down and... Did he not believe NASA about the entry of objects into the atmosphere? How they... Yeah, I mean, up? was he going to... What was he going to do? Was he going to... Or did he think he could float on a parachute from that high? Yeah, maybe that's what he thought. Uh, anyway. You couldn't do that. I mean... No. Well, that's pretty stupid. <laughs> You got to feel for it. This is like a Darwin Award. I feel sorry for it. Yeah, it's like... 
All right. Well, he knows now. Yeah, now he knows. All right. This one is funny. So a woman, 61-year-old Pennsylvania woman, refused a liver transplant after doctors detected alcohol in her urine. She swear, swore that she had not been drinking, but went ahead and went through the, uh, you know, the alcohol um, addiction treatment program and so on and so forth. Tests revealed no booze in her blood, but her urine continued to show alcohol and eventually it showed um, signs, you know, they tested it further, so a lot of uh, sugar and yeast. It turns out she was actually producing wow. alcohol in her bladder. Wow, I know, right? That sounds like one of those uh, one of those house episodes. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like the 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 one in a million improbable patient. Right? Huh? That's that's pretty weird. Yeah. Well, along similar lines, um, residents in an apartment building in India. Um, were shocked when a mix of beer, brandy, and rum started gushing out of their kitchen taps. Now, me, personally, I'd have been, hey, guys, let's not tell anybody about this. Just start filling bottles. Right. Um, officials had confiscated, like, 6,000 liters of alcohol uh, and buried them nearby, and all the bottles broke, and it leaked into the groundwater. <laughs> <laughs> They confiscate. I guess this is like a dry zone. I guess this is India. You said in India, yeah. Okay, they're Muslims. Maybe like no one's allowed to drink. Well, there. no, they're not Muslims. They're Hindus. Oh, okay. Well, then why did they confiscate all that? I don't know. I think Hindus have some restrictions too, or maybe it was like one of those, you know, like a, um, like in America, yeah. you know, if, if you're trying to smuggle six thousand liters of something across state lines, you'd be. Arrested and yeah. be confiscated, but instead of instead of holding his evidence or doing doing what any responsible cop would do, which is take it back to the station to properly dispose of, they yeah. buried it. Drink it. <laughs> well, they uh, tells you what kind of plumbing they have there. Yep. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. Uh, in Vancouver. Police are investigating and looking for the identity of someone who left tire tracks on a crosswalk on a street that was painted with the pride uh, stripes of colors. Wait a minute, on the crosswalk. So that's on the street where you're supposed to drive, someone left tire tracks. And the police are looking for them to apprehend them. Wasn't anyone allowed to drive on it? No, no, it was on the street. It was a drive, crosswalk. Why would you have a crosswalk where tracks. somebody's not allowed to drive? <laughs> Here's the statement. Yeah. Wouldn't you call it something else, like not a street or a crosswalk? Yeah. Here's, here's the crossing. statement of uh, Constable Kevin Goodmurphy. Uh, like I said, you cannot make this stuff up. This is very upsetting, Constable Kevin Goodmurphy said in a statement. For whatever reason, this person has chosen to leave a gesture of hate on a crosswalk that stands for the exact opposite. <laughs> These people are gay wads. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> it's like... I don't know what's happening in this world. <laughs> you would shake your head if it was just like an area or a country but it's the whole world's going crazy i know i know um it's like you know it's funny my 
we, my wife and I watched an episode of Monk the other night, and it was the, uh, I think it was the first, like the pilot episode, and with the the candidate and his wife is uh, doing, you know, yeah. reading to some kids in a school, and the kids are like one kid's coughing, and another one's <laughs> picking her nose and stuff like yeah. that, and, and then later it's like. He's with, uh, and, and, you know, Monk goes crazy and runs out. And later, he's with his doctor, Dr. Kroger, and uh, they get to an elevator. And Kroger's talking about, yeah, I think, you know, maybe I could recommend you for reinstatement. And the elevator opens, and there's a, a woman in there, and she coughs. And he just kind of stops. <laughs> She's like, you going down? He says, no, I wasn't. <laughs> now, here's the thing. We laugh at that as a silly incapacitation what people don't get, it, well, I mean, maybe they do get it and they don't care, but the whole world is like that today. They're getting like that. Every little thing <laughs> bothers them to the point where they just can't function. Yeah. So cats. anyway, but, you know, I wow. mean, and honestly, if somebody painted a, 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 a pride crosswalk in my town, I'd spit on it every time I walked on it. I think I'd it. go down but, there and... I don't know, maybe uh, paste, paint do a number two on it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't do that. That would be uh, uh, that would that would show po- poorly on me. I feel, but I would spit on it at the very least. <laughs> and get my dog to do a number two on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just carry all the number two. But if there. you if you drive on it, even though it's a crosswalk, <laughs> the Vancouver police want to talk to you. And of course, tire tracks. <laughs> tire tracks is apparently now. That's hate speech. A, a gesture of hate. Yeah. It's <laughs> I all had over no the street. idea. All those years growing up, hearing those cars squealing out and leaving rubber on the road, I never realized those were gestures of hate. Yeah. <laughs> we thought they were just having fun. <laughs> All right, that's all I got. That was a lot of nonsense news this week. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff there. A lot of stuff going on. I don't, you know, I we got to have one where we just talk about stupid stuff. We these things. Okay, the left and the communists used to uh, they used to kind of create an argument that you mm-hmm. had to argue against, and those days are oh, gone. Yeah, they don't. They don't even do that anymore. Right. The the arguments are so stupid, there's no reason to even talk about this stuff anymore. Yeah, I mean, the, their it's, arguments amount to like a fifth grader on the playground saying, you're a poopy butt. You know? Yeah. It's like that. It's, and I, I hear it like, you know, if you listen to news radio and, and t- or talk radio, you know, you'll, you'll have callers who call in and complaining about the stuff that we're complaining about. And every now and then a leftist will call in and, and argue a point, And it's like, this guy's a moron. Yeah. And he shows himself to be a moron, but other morons don't recognize it. <laughs> For some reason, I don't. It's like a, yeah, it's like they've given over to this weird hive mind kind of phenomenon or something. I don't know. <clears throat> oh well, well, uh, we're two hours in almost. So uh, yeah, and my wife is already upset with me for being that long. Yeah, <laughs> actually, though, I came down like like, oh gosh, like a half hour before we even started recording, thinking that you were close to being ready, um, and. So what time was that? Uh, I don't know. I was cooking dinner when we started uh, texting each other. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so at uh, at 8.04, I said, I assume you're making coffee. 
and we we I didn't even start until nine o'clock. So I was yeah. so basically I've been down here for three hours, and my wife thinks we did a three hour show. So I'm yeah, gonna have to well, go up and she doesn't uh, have to know. <laughs> yeah, she does. The three hour show. <laughs> She's not gonna listen. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right well, we'll see, folks. Wait, uh, think about what we said. And, and circle always, the beads. Yep. Circle, circle the beads. As often as you can, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Bye, folks.